Counseling. I'm the Ippy Award-winning author of Stop Looking for a Husband, Find the Love of Your Life. I'm also the author of Nasty Divorce, A Kid's Eye View. I write positive divorce advice for the HuffPost, and I'm trained in clinical hypnosis. And this podcast speaks to out-of-the-box thinkers and open-minded individuals. It's for those that hear the call of hope in always another way. And if you are very rigid and set in your beliefs, then this probably isn't your cup of tea. However, you should note, taste can and do change. And today, I am so excited to talk to Johan Hari. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Chasing the Scream and also his new book, Lost Connections, which is what we're going to be talking about. Chasing the Scream is going to be adapted into a feature film, and he was twice named Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International UK. He's written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and others. He's a regular panelist on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. And his TED Talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong, and the animation based on it have more than 20 million views. So welcome, Johan. Hi, Marina. It's lovely to be with you. I feel like since you're a hypnotist, you could be secretly hypnotizing me during this interview. So I'm, well, I'm being vigilant here. Right? Okay, yes. But just, uh, <laughs> you know, all hypnosis is actually self-hypnosis. So the cool thing is, is that you're always in control. And just before I want to begin, I, I told him this before, but I love this book so much. And when I like books, I, I dog ear like things that I like. So there'll be a page, a page. And if you can see the almost entire book has been dog-eared. It is, it's that good. And let's just dive right in and tell us, you know, why, why you decided to write Lost Connections. Oh, thank you so much for what you said, Marina. I, I think 
there were these two kind of mysteries that were hanging over me. One was, I'm 39 years old. Every single year almost that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have risen in the US and Britain. And I kept thinking, what, what's going on here? And, and, and that was part because of a, a more personal mystery for me. When I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor and I'd set, explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. I couldn't control it. I couldn't regulate it. I was very ashamed of it. I was quite frightened about it. And my doctor told me a story about why I felt this way. Lots of your listeners will have been told this story in the 90s. He said, oh, well, we know why this is. Scientists have proved it. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains, makes people feel good. Some people are just naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. Um, and the solution is just that we need to give you these drugs. So I started taking SSRIs. It's um, a drug called Paxil in the US. Um, and, you know, I felt an immediate boost. I felt much better. Even before I started taking the drugs, just with that story, I felt better. And then with the drugs, I felt a really massive boost. And then a couple of months later, this feeling of pain started to bleed back through quite quickly. I felt really bad again. I went back to the doctor. He said, well, clearly I didn't give you a high enough dose gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt better. Again, the sense of pain started to bleed back through. And I was kind of in this cycle of being given higher and higher doses until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose. At the end of which I still felt terrible. And I thought, well, what's going on here, right? So I ended up going on this big, long journey to really across the world over 40,000 miles from San Francisco to Sao Paulo to Sydney. And really, I wanted to firstly meet with the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And people who just have very different perspectives on depression and anxiety from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore, one of the best universities in the United States that was giving people psychedelics to see if that would help them with their, their sense of despair. And I think I learned many things, but I think the core of what I learned is until I was, until I went to my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning I was just being weak, I needed to man up, you know, insert your stigmatizing cliche here. And then for the next 13 years, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain. And actually what I learned in the research for Lost Connections is there are real biological factors that can make you more susceptible to depression. But the core of what's causing our epidemic of depression and anxiety, according to the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, is not in our heads. It's largely in the way we're living. I learned that there's evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are biological. Seven of them are factors in the way we live, and many of which not all are rising, which explains why we have this rising epidemic. And once I learned that, I realized that opens up a very different way of thinking about how we solve this crisis of depression and anxiety alongside chemical antidepressants, which do give some relief to some people. You know, that is when I started reading the book and the story you just told, starting with the Paxil. That was my story too. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is like living my life, but differently somewhere else. And, um, and for those of you, when you get the book, and we're going to talk a little bit more, but you, you did, uh, I mean, hardcore research, and I'm a therapist, went through, and as I was reading, I'm like, oh, wait, but no, you covered it, every bit of research. And so, you know, with that, what is this new story about depression and anxiety that you have uncovered? There's so many aspects of it, but 
think the core of it, part of the core of it, there are many things going on here. And I think part of the problem is we've been told such a simplistic story up to now. I wanted to tell a story that's true to the complexity of depression and anxiety and their causes. But I think part of the core of it is everyone listening to your podcast knows that they have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If, it, if I took those things away from you, you would be in real trouble real fast, right? Sure. There's pretty strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel that you have a future that makes sense. And our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. But we have been getting less and less good meeting these deep, underlying psychological needs. And I think this is the core, not the only reason, but one of the core reasons why we have this rising depression and anxiety crisis. And that can sound a bit weird if you if you say it in the abstract, it's kind of a bit strange. So I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, obviously I go through nine causes in the book, but let's start with one that I think a lot of people will immediately see in their own lives. Um, we are the loneliest culture that has ever been. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could call on in a crisis. And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are more people who have nobody to turn to when things go wrong than any other option. And human beings, if, why, why are we alive, right? Why are we able to have this conversation? One of the key reasons is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing, they weren't stronger than the animals they took down. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than them. What they were was incredibly good at banding together in tribes and cooperating. Every instinct human beings have is to be together in a tribe, just like bees need a hive, humans need a tribe. And actually, one of the people who taught me so much about this is a man who very sadly died this week, a wonderful man called Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, who I interviewed a lot, who did uh, some of the really important research about loneliness, he showed, he proved, he proved many things, but one of the things he proved is for a human being, being acutely lonely releases as much of the stress hormone cortisol as being punched in the face by a stranger. And he explained to me, why is that? Think about the circumstances where we evolved, right? If you were separated from the tribe in the circumstances where we evolved, you were anxious and depressed for a really good reason you were about to die probably right, right. It's just, so we those are our instincts that's who we are as a species and and when i learned that so firstly professor cassiopo proved that loneliness causes depression and anxiety and secondly there's overwhelming evidence that loneliness has massively increased across the western world again you begin to see how that explains one of the reasons why depression and anxiety have increased and how it's way too simplistic to say to people, it's just a chemical imbalance in your brain. And, and one of the things that was so important to me in, in, the, in the research for Lost Connections was, was realizing that when you understand the problem differently, a different set of solutions opens up. So one of the heroes of the book is an amazing doctor called Sam Everington, who's a, a, a general practitioner, general medical doctor here in London, as you can tell from my weird Downton Abbey voice. I'm British, although mm -hmm. I spend a lot of my time in the US. And Sam, Sam was a doctor in a place where I lived for a long time, a very poor part of East London. Sadly, he was never my doctor. And, and Sam was really uncomfortable because loads of people were coming to him with really deep depression and anxiety. And like me, Sam isn't opposed to chemical antidepressants, but he just thought, 
this, this clearly isn't solving the problem for most of the people I'm giving them to, right? They're giving a little bit of relief to some people and therefore it has some value, but it's not solving the problem. He decided to try a different approach. One day, a woman called Lisa Cunningham came to him. Lisa had been shut away in her home with really acute depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to her, Lisa, don't worry, I'm going to carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to try something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was just scrubland, basically. And he said, what I'd like you to do is come and turn up twice a week. I'll turn out and support you. And with a group of other depressed and anxious people, I'd like you to turn this scrubland into something beautiful. The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, right? She hadn't spoken to people in years, but she barely spoken to people in years. So, but she starts to meet with the group and a couple of things happen. So first thing that's really striking when you speak to people who took part in this group is that they had something to talk about that wasn't their depression and anxiety, right? Mostly what we do with depressed people is either we drug them or we give them an opportunity to go and talk about how terrible they feel. Here they had something to talk about that was something completely different. It was gardening, right? They decided to make a garden. They got their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that interacting with the natural world is an incredibly powerful natural antidepressant for reasons we can we can talk about. They also started to do what human beings do when we get together in tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. There was, for example, this is an extreme example, there was one person in the group who was sleeping on a public bus, right, because he was homeless. Everyone else in the group was like, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on a bus. They started to right. pressure the local authority to get this guy housed. They got him a home. It was the first thing a lot of them had done for someone else in years and it made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found that it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason, it was dealing with some of the key reasons why they felt so terrible in the first place. Oh, that is for sure. And I love that story. And and with that, you know, kind of talking about the, um, and this is another part in your book, um, where, you know, it talks about the chemicals, but also how that snowball effect can kind of happen with thoughts, because I'm very interested in that, how, you know, and you talked talked about that with the group, you're just talking about depression. And when you take that thing, it's your brain that will keep going down that rabbit trail. But conversely, getting into a better space, you can ramp yourself back up. And, and that being said, so there are some people listening and, you know, I can say because I'm a believer, it's always another way for a reason, personal struggle. But the people saying, well, what if, it, it, you know, what if there are genetic causes? Is that real? What about that? What can you say to that? There are very real genetic causes. So everyone who studied this, with a handful of exceptions, agrees there are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety. There are biological causes. Your genes are one of the most prominent. There's also real changes in your brain that happen when you become depressed. I don't think they should be described as a chemical imbalance. We can come back to why if you want, but those are very real biological factors. Then there's psychological factors, which are how you think about yourself, your thoughts and so on. And then there are social factors, your environment, the people around you, the world around you, the way, you, the way we live together. And everyone agrees in every depressed person, uh, and in fact, in all mental health problems, all those factors play out to some degree. So let's think about something where the biological element is obviously the main driver, dementia, right? Dementia is obviously a physical degeneration of the brain. Even with that, where there's a bit, the really huge biological factor, we know there are psychological and social factors. 
if you are socially isolated, your dementia will be much worse, hit you much faster and be much worse. If you are very pessimistic, if you're very afraid, we know that your dementia will affect you much worse. So every, these three things interact in all mental health problems. So it's important to stress, biology is very real. The biological factors are very real. You mentioned genetics. Um, your genes can make you significantly more sensitive to depression and anxiety. Now, it's important to say it's not the same as causing the problem. In the same way, we all know this about weight, right? Some people can eat 10 Big Macs and not put on any weight. I have to eat, you know, one mouthful of Big Mac and my face swells, right? <laughs> uh, we all know, and we all hate those skinny Big Mac munchers, right? But we all know that's, that's there's two things going on there. There's a genetic predisposition, but I still have to eat the Big Macs. You know, there still has to be something in the environment that interacts with it, right? And me, and you took me who puts on weight easily and someone who finds it hard to put on weight and you put us in a famine zone and we would both become, you know, emaciated, right? So you can see that there's, those factors are interacting. Very similar things happening with depression. So the best evidence suggests your genes can make you between 30 to 40% more vulnerable to the social and psychological factors that are driving this depression epidemic. Right. And then that and true with epigenetics too. So genetics can be changed during that. And, um, and on this journey that's led you to some different solutions, so, you know, we know that, and I'm a therapist, and so I see people come in and almost, well, I'd say 100% of the people have a, usually a social or environmental factor that is, that is the primary causer of this. But about different solutions, what different solutions have you found along this way? So we know that, you know, typically people run to a doctor for a pill, but there are, there are many, many other ways to help with depression. And what are some of the big ones that you found? So just before I say that, there's um, something I learned. A lot of the things I learned for Lost Connections, I learned intellectually from experts, and there were key moments when these insights fell into place for me. And I was like, oh, that's what they've been telling me. And there's one moment that really happened to think about this in terms of solutions, to think about solutions differently. I went to interview a South African psychiatrist called Dr. Derek Summerfield, who's a great guy. And Derek, just by coincidence, happened to be in Cambodia in 2001, when chemical antidepressants were first introduced in that country. And the doctors there, the local Cambodian doctors, didn't know what they were. They'd never heard of this. So they said to Derek, what are they? And he explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of, you know, herbal remedy or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and he got his leg blown off. And so they gave him an artificial limb and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's extremely painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. And for obvious reasons, I think it was, must have been pretty traumatic for him to go back into this field. So he started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed. Classic depression. They said to Derek, so we gave him an antidepressant. He said, well, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense, that it wasn't some irrational pathology that actually had perfectly understandable causes. They figured if they bought him a cow, he wouldn't have to go into this field that was upsetting him so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a few weeks, his crying stopped and his depression went away. They said to Derek, so that cow, that's an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization has been trying to tell us for years. Your pain makes sense. 
if you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs and you need help and love and support to get those deeper needs met. And when I, when I understood that, I could then go on this journey for Lost Connections, my book, to, to really begin to think about, well, what, what are these different solutions? What, what are, what's the cow for the problems that we have, right? Now, I will stress, these are solutions that should be offered to people alongside chemical antidepressants, which do give some relief to some people as they initially gave me some relief, but sadly not for very long. Um, so I'll give you, um, I mean, there's so many we could talk about. Um, I'll talk about the one that's hardest for me to talk about. I'm trying to make myself talk about this in interviews for reasons that will become obvious. So the cause of depression and anxiety I found hardest to learn about uh, was one that was discovered kind of by accident in the 1980s in, in San Diego in California. And if I tell you the story of how it was discovered, the listeners at first are going to think, what's he talking about? This is a, it's a completely different subject, but trust me, it's led to a breakthrough in depression and you can't really understand why if you don't understand the whole story. So in the mid-1980s, a great doctor called Dr, a very prestigious doctor called Dr. Vincent Felitti was approached by Kaiser Permanente, who were one of the biggest not-for-profit medical providers in California. And they said, look, we've got this problem. Obesity costs were massively rising and nothing they were trying offering people diet programs, nutrition, none of, nutritional advice, none of it was working. So they said to Dr. Felitti, you know, please help us. They gave him a pretty big budget to just do blue skies research to figure out what the hell was going on. So he starts to work in a program with, I think it was just over 350 extremely dangerously obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds. And he starts working with them. And one day he has this kind of, what seems like a really dumb idea when you first hear it. He just said, what would happen if they just stopped eating, right? And he figured out, okay, well, what do people die of when they stop eating? They, they lack this vitamin or that vitamin. So, okay, well, what if we just gave them all those vitamins, but they didn't eat anything? Would they just live off the fat stores in their body? So they began this experiment, obviously with massive medical supervision. They begin this experiment, right? And it turned out in one sense, it worked. People who've been more than 400 pounds go down to like, 130 pounds. So there's a woman I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to call her Susan to protect her medical confidentiality. She had been, she, she was one of the stars of the program. She'd been over 400 pounds. She gets down to, I think it was 138 pounds. And one day something happened that no one expected because she's celebrating. They think, well, God, we've saved her life. And Vincent's being lauded as a hero. And one day she just runs to KFC or whatever it was and starts just obsessively eating. And very quickly, she's back to an extremely dangerous way, not quite where she'd been, but a dangerous way. And Vincent called her in and he said, Susan, what, what happened? And she's very ashamed. She was like, I don't know, I don't know. And he said, well, tell me about that day. Tell me about the day that you cracked. What happened? Turned out that day, something very specific had happened, something that had never happened to her in all the time she'd been obese. A man had hit on her and it really freaked her out. Right. So that was Vincent's right. That's interesting. So he then starts to talk about, well, tell me about when you started to put on weight. In Susan's case, it was when she was 11. He said, well, why when you were 11 and not when you were 10 or when you were 13 or 18? Why then? Did anything happen that year? And she said, yeah, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. And Vincent started to talk to the people in the program. He discovered that 55 percent of them had begun their weight gain in the wake of being sexually abused. That's obviously far higher than the general population. He began to realize 
that this thing that seems like an irrational pathology, weight gain, in fact, had a perfectly rational function, right? It was sexually protective, as, as Susan put it, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be. So this was still quite a small study, it's only 350 people. So Vincent got funding, because this was such an interesting result, got funding from the Center for Disease Control, one of the main medical bodies in the US, um, to do a massive study. Everyone who came to Kaiser Permanente in San Diego for the next year, whether it's for headaches, a broken leg, schizophrenia, anything, got given a really detailed questionnaire. It just, first part of it asked, did any of these 10 bad things happen to you when you were a kid? Things like sexual abuse, physical abuse. The next part asked, did, have you had any of these problems as an adult? Uh, one was obesity, one was addiction. Uh, and then, and this leads to the breakthrough here, one of them was depression and suicide attempts. And what they found, I mean, when the CDC adds it all up, it was, people were just amazed. For every category of childhood trauma, you were radically more likely to become um, obese, addicted, depressed. If you had had six of these categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide as an adult. Astonishing figures, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason I found this really hard, and it made me realize something about myself. I'm not an idiot, right? I, at some level, I knew quite early that this story I'd been told about it being just a chemical imbalance couldn't be quite right. Because why would it be rising so much if it was just a chemical imbalance? It didn't, I, I had that thought, but every time I had that thought, I would kind of jab it away, right? I didn't want to think about it. And I think one of the reasons I clung to this chemical imbalance story for so long is because I, I had experienced some quite extreme childhood trauma. When I was a child, my mother had been very unwell. My dad was in a different country. And from an adult in my life, I'd experienced some very extreme acts. And I didn't want to think about that. I didn't want to think that had any power over me. I didn't want to give the individual involved any power over me. I, I, I was quite ashamed of it, even though rationally, of course, I knew that was absurd. The reason I mentioned this in response to your question about solutions is because I don't want to look at what Vincent had found. When I went to San Diego, I was I felt quite angry with him, actually. But it was what he discovered next that I think is the most Im Im important part of this. So once someone had indicated on the form they had experienced one of these forms of childhood trauma, the next part of the study said to the doctor, next time they come for medical care, um, they were given a little script for what to say to them. They were told to say something like, I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. Would you like to talk about it? And a lot of people said no, a minority, but a big minority said no. But most people did want to talk about it. The average conversation lasted five minutes, right? Um, and then at the end of it, some of them were told, it was randomized, some of them were told, I can also refer you to a therapist to talk about this more. They wanted to see what the effect would be. What's incredible was just that five minute conversation, that alone, led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. Just having an authority figure say, I'm really sorry, that shouldn't have happened, on its own led to a significant release of shame. And the people who were referred to a therapist had a bigger fall, in, of course, in depression and anxiety. And I think that tells us something really important, right? Shame destroys people. There's lots of scientific evidence for this. For example, during the AIDS crisis, openly gay men died on average two years later than closeted gay men, even when they got healthcare at the same time, right, for their, for their, for, for their HIV. Shame destroys people. 
um, people who've gone through a lot of childhood trauma tend to have a lot of shame about their experiences. They find it harder to trust the world. That that alone, releasing that shame, is itself an antidepressant, right? Very powerful antidepressant. So again, that I think that underscores one of the key things that I think run ran through what I learned for my book, Lost Connections, which is when you understand the problem differently, you can find different solutions, ones that are much more effective. I remember one woman wrote to one of her doctors in San Diego after this conversation, a woman in her 80s who had been sexually abused. And she said, I'm so glad you asked. I thought I was going to die and no one would ever know. Wow. You just, um, I'm, I'm a five on the ACEs too high score and the ACEs too high is the study of the Kaiser Permanente. And that is just so true because it's so, so, so prevalent. And then... And then I'm afraid we're going to have to end soon. But um, this was just such an amazing interview. And, and just the, the very final story that you told. And I grew up in a verbally abusive environment. I was sexually molested. All these things that same thing. Didn't know like, oh, it's just me. You're pushed down because you don't want to. And the body does things to associate to protect yourself. It's a protective mechanism. And this book will just give you you know, I think also with that clarity and peace of just knowing it's not just me, but your body does things to save you in certain situations and that causes other things and recognizing that. And Johan, you've just done an amazing amount of research. I mean, this is like all the research you would ever want to do in this book. Anecdotal stories. It is absolutely brilliant. And I just thank you so much for writing it. There's going to be so much healing that goes on when you can just understand that you are not alone and that connecting with others, I mean, truly, you can feel it in your body and just letting people be attuned to themselves. How do you feel when you're with other people and in certain situations in your body and in your mind and to trust yourself? And just thank you so much, Johan for this interview, for all of your knowledge, for your research. And I really um, get lost connections, get chasing the scream too. It is amazing. Your questions will be answered. And you know, there is always another way. Oh, thank you so much. For being here. Thank you. Thank you.